I've been speaking on the theme of Dhamma as the practice of a totality so that our lives aren't um, fragmented compartments but that we see all of our lives as a ground, as a field of awakening. I spoke of the initial opening to the Dhamma that brings about faith, the trusting heart, the little early glimpses of the suchness of things, of the as-it-isness of things that uh, nurtures motivation and inspiration, and how that feeds into Dhamma energy, which is the activator of the whole path of purification and the movement toward completion and wholeness. And I spoke on sati, that, uh, that jewel of Dhamma practice with its uh, pre-verbal power of awareness that cuts through conceptual proliferation and sees things as they are, and that knows the difference between what is sati, what is pure awareness, and what isn't begins to feel a difference of, between the experience of the immediacy of things and the sense of having an agenda in reaction to experience. That soft, focused gaze as a way of Dhamma practice. And finally, its great capacity to disidentify with our experience. With this faith, this energy, and this awareness, as they build, as they harmonize, it begins to, to gather the mind in from its usual fragmentation, its usual being uh, scattered and split off in so many different compartments. It begins to bring about a stability of mind, to unify it. And this is what we call samadhi usually translated as concentration. But its real meaning is the collectedness of mind, that non-distractedness or uh, unification of consciousness. There are two kinds of concentration that it's helpful to have a, a sense of their difference. One comes from pure concentration practice called samatha. <clears throat> which is the practice with the aim of developing tranquility and serenity and uh, stillness of mind, happiness of mind. This kind of concentration practice is known as fixed concentration because one fixes their attention on a single object and holds it there, unwavering. And it is, it is that very holding of the attention on that single object that makes the mind collected and suppresses all the hindrances, keeps them away. And it's that very absence of hindrances that's the cause for the mind to feel, at first, um, little tingles of joy and in moving into rapture, moving into great bliss and happiness. It's a very feel-good practice, and that's its aim. 
However, it's been described as, um, as if one practices indoors. Because it's going in, it's keeping everything else out. And that going in, although, yes, it has the effect of keeping the invaders out, doubt, sleepiness, restlessness, worry, and so forth, which, it's, which is itself the cause for a happy and peaceful and serene mind, it does not see the outdoors. It does not see things as they actually are. So at best, pure concentration practice can only be a foundation, a basis upon which one must then focus their attention on things as they are. So traditionally, many people were taught to practice this way when conditions were very uh, ripe for that. That is, uh, there wasn't such a busy industrial type of culture. So it was very easy to go out into the wild and be quiet and get the mind very, very collected. And then at the right time, to take that laser beam-like quality of focus, of concentration, and apply it to the mind-body, to the nature of the mind-body, and then to see exactly what is this experience, what is this nature. The Vipassana Samadhi is like practicing outdoors, in the wild. It's open to everything, to the fullness of life, to things as they are. So our entire range of experience then becomes what we can be one-pointedly focused on. So instead of a fixed concentration, it's a fluid concentration, sometimes called momentary concentration, because the mind collects on the momentary flow of experience in its immediacy as we're experiencing it. This is what we're collected on. We're not shutting things out. We develop just enough concentration to be able to hold the hindrances uh, at bay so that they're not continually taking over. But we're actually open to the hindrances themselves when they do arise to try to see, understand, be with them, and be able to let go of them. It is this second kind of concentration, Vipassana Samadhi, that leads to wisdom because it begins right away with what with seeing the nature of things. It's focused here and now with what's appearing and using what's appearing as a way to focus the mind. So samadhi means unification, collectedness, non-distractedness of mind. The sati, the mindfulness, purifies the stream of consciousness and begins to gather, begins to gather the mind together from its usual scattered state. The nature of the kilesas, the nature of the forces of greed, hatred, delusion, uh, is to scatter, is to divide, is to split the mind off with fear and anger and desire and uh, sleepiness, restlessness, doubts and worry. 
The non-distracted mind is the opposite of this fragmentation. It does not get split off and fragmented. Distractedness cannot absorb difficulty. It gets shattered like, like a mirror. All the pieces of the mind uh, uh, split apart, or like when you throw a stone into a very flat uh, surface reflecting the sky. It's, it's a, it still reflects, but in many different scattered little pieces. So distracted mind is unable to take in and to transform unskillful states. Distracted, non-collected mind stays deluded. It stays confused. And delusion is the type of mind we all experience as kind of stiff, unyielding, unpliable. It easily fixates on things. And it feeds on negativity, which um, is operates or is nurtured under the veil of this delusion. So when the mind is um, scattered in this way, when it's fragmented in this way, it easily proliferates. It goes off and can fixate on things, build things up beyond their true um, qualities. It expands them into something that they're usually not with the fabrication process of the mind. What I spoke about last week as papancha. So this manifests sometimes in what we call uh, in retreat yogi mind. And I'm going to tell two stories to um, demonstrate what yogi mind is if you haven't already heard about it. One is at a retreat that Michelle and I were teaching a few years ago in Australia. And at the end of a Dharma talk, we came out of the building. And usually we walk through the walking room into the room where I was staying. And we'd talk for a few minutes. And then Michelle would go upstairs to her room, you know, and we'd go to bed. But this was a beautiful night. The moon was out. So we came out of the building, and Michelle walked out another way to look at the sky and the moon. And she came in the rear door of my room. But I didn't know that she was going to do this, so I walked through the walking room and entered my room through the walking room uh, entrance and left the door open for her. So I was surprised to see her come in the back door. And I said, why'd you come in that door? And we all know how softly Michelle speaks, so she answered so that I could hear, but that this yogi who was now entering the walking room couldn't hear her answer, but heard my question. Why are you coming in that door? <laughs> so this is about 8.30 at night. <laughs> about 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning, there's a knock on my door. Stephen, are you awake? <laughs> well, I was, but come on in. <laughs> and he came in and he said, why did you ask me why I came in that door? <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> All night long he had been fixated on t 
thinking that I was talking to him and letting this proliferate, you know, into this real yogi mind state. <laughs> and I, um, I reassured him and sent him back to his practice and I went back to sleep. Well, I tried to go back to sleep. That's one example of yogi mind. The other example of yogi mind uh, was at a retreat some years ago also that I was about to sit. And uh, Upandita was teaching, and at that time, a Western monk was giving the sort of initial um, um, instructions about how the course was going to be. He was talking about the eight precepts and things like that. So someone in the in yogi land raised their hand and asked, well, what about spirulina? <laughs> and the um, spirulina is this green algae-like uh, powdered vitamin, you know, supplement that you mix and juice and drink. And this Western monk said, no, no, that's a food. You can't have that after, after 12 o'clock. Well, for many years now, I had been used to having my spirulina, you know, at, at retreats, five o'clock, because I had heard that some years before that, that Saira Upandita had been served this in the afternoon and was introduced to it as a mineral vitamin supplement. So, you know, armed with that information, I was delightedly having my spirulina cocktail every afternoon of my retreats, you know, at five o'clock with two um, chewable vitamin C wafers. <laughs> so, <laughs> it approximated a meal of sorts, at least psychologically. <laughs> so the retreat hadn't started yet, and you know, I was in that vulnerable place of taking in all this information and judging it all, and I immediately became a little upset that I was being told that spirulina wasn't okay. So I thought, well, he doesn't know. He doesn't know that Sayadaw himself does it. I just, I'm not going to even listen to it and take it a step further. Um, and a little bit later, I saw him in, you know, outside of the meditation hall and said, you know, this spirulina, it's okay, you know, Sayadaw takes it. <laughs> and he says, no, 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 it's not, it's, not, it's a food. It's definitely not okay. And so I, just, I, I said, well, no, I'm not going not gonna to let it bother me whatsoever. <laughs> it started my... Uh, my sitting, the next day I went to an interview with Upandita, and at the end of, you know, reporting, he said, um, you know, I'd been working with him maybe 12 years, he said, Stephen, are you under eight precepts? <laughs> he had never asked me such a question before. I mean, I just, I said, yes, Saida, I'm always under eight precepts when I sit with you. Okay, he said. And so I thought, I'm not going to even think about this. <laughs> I went downstairs, and immediately it came to mind, now, did that monk tell him something? No, couldn't have. And I went back to my room, and I was sitting, and cocktail time came. And I couldn't bring myself to drink it, you know, I couldn't bring myself to hit the spirulina. It was just working in my mind and starting to grow, proliferate. And then I thought, gee, maybe this guy betrayed me, and that really pushed my button. You know, 
so I thought, I need to get more information. So my eyes, you know, I'd reached 40 by then. My eyes were going bad, so I got a magnifying glass, and I snuck into the kitchen, you know, with my spirulina uh, bottle, and I compared ingredients between the spirulina container and the vitamin, all the other vitamins there, the vegetarian vitamins and the non-vegetarian vitamins, and started to write all that information. <laughs> I figured out <laughs> that with the non-vegetarian vitamins, you could virtually make a hamburger. <laughs> and with the vegetarian ones, you could make a tofu burger or vegetarian burger of some sort. So I was really armed and ready with this information. And I went back and terrible sitting scattered all over the place. And the next day, I, the next thing I wanted to know was, did this guy betray me? So I wrote a note. I said, do you have any idea whatsoever why Upandita would have said to me <laughs> if I was under the eight precepts. <laughs> and he wrote back and said, I have no idea. <laughs> so it took away my paranoia around the betrayal. And then I just started to soften a bit. You know, I, I finally began to feel that I was just you know, in yogi mind, that I was paranoid. And I let the whole thing go. And in fact, I never even had any spirulina. <laughs> and I've never had since. I, <laughs> I stuck to the vitamin C wafers. So. <laughs> when I'm really, when I'm very tired, or in a, or very vulnerable to the world, or things happening, or I'm feeling uncentered. I'm unable to absorb and transform and let go difficult states. Uh, you know, anger or fear, strong uh, desire. And I get fixed on the, the object or the goal or the desire. And my mind does one of two things. It either kind of implodes where I just withdraw or disconnect. You know, don't feel and don't connect with, with anyone or anything, any, not connect with what's happening, feel separate from it. Or just about the opposite, I, I attack and uh, use that unskillful energy to, to also separate, but in a more divisive way with other people. So that there's no communication. Like instead of communicating with the aim of understanding and communicating with intimacy, it's a communication or action that's intimidating. And no understanding comes. There's no flourishing. Of, uh, there's no ability to transform the angry energy into something that uh, brings about uh, deeper connection and understanding and change which, whatever it is that needs to be changed. So it takes for me this utter honesty to to tune in to the mood, whatever it is, paranoia or fear or sense of being split off, and to assess what's going on, you know, to recognize, to acknowledge what's happening, to accept it and to just be with the situation or be with the mood of mind, that willingness to hang out with it 
until my mind gets collected again. It might, might mean that I can't be with the, the heavy negative energy at first. It might mean I have to focus elsewhere, like just with the breath or with sounds. You know, just refine my focus in some area that's neutral and safe. Because the aim here is to get collected, is to get my mind again unified and non-distracted. And then I can open up to and feel this situation or this heavier mood. And my mind then is able to be anchored in the awareness and in that collectedness and not shattered or scattered by whatever the mood is. And that's the only way that then I, one or I can begin to disidentify with it, you know, and to see it impartially and completely, wholly. Only way I can maintain that soft gaze, you know, without trying to have an agenda with the uh, situation or with the mood of mind. Or sometimes it requires for me to do some metta, you know, heavy uh, negative energy that makes my body shake or feel, you know, vulnerable. Uh, the metta practice for me brings that collectedness back, brings that unification of heart you know, back, and that can then absorb, transform, deal, work with that energy. So at first, one feels uh, insulated, perhaps, from these negative states, at a distance from them. If we stay there, then we stay separate from the experience. If instead we use that as an opportunity to get collected, and then be able to open to it. Then we were deeply in touch with the experience. When I was first kayaking, uh, my kayak actually felt, uh, I felt insulated from the water. In a way, I felt safe and protected. You know, being in that kayak and being um, um, uh, insulated from the currents and the eddies and so, and so forth. But after a while, as I got more confident and more skilled, it's as if the kayak became transparent. It's as if the kayak became an extension of my awareness and then very responsive to the experience of the river, the surges and countersurges and the eddies and waves and so forth. So that I was actually began to feel very in touch with the river, very at one with it. It's the same way as the mind begins, you know, at first dealing with experience, we might feel separate and insulated from it. Or we might intentionally insulate ourselves to get the mind collected. But then the aim, the skillful aim, would be to feel the direct connectedness with what's happening in the way that's responsive and skillful and not identified, not overwhelmed by it. The sustained sati, the sustained energetic awareness of the arising and passing waves of experience is the condition for the cohesion of the mind, the condition for this collected, unified awareness. Then, like, like the ocean, the mind is able to absorb all the waves, able to absorb all the difficult states, and all the pleasant states as well. 
mind, the mind becomes very fluid and smooth and yielding and flowing and soft. At the same time, very powerful and responsive to our experience. The cohesion of vipassana samadhi, vipassana collectedness of mind, is like a shock absorbent. You know, it's able to take in even those sudden jarring experiences that can happen to us. Either in sitting, many of you experience a sudden sound or movement as very jarring because the body and the mind are all so sensitive. And you can begin to tell sometimes, uh, recognize this sensitivity as the hues of colors take on these very subtle uh, nuances. You know, and sudden bright colors, you notice those that you hadn't particularly noticed before. Or the nuances of sound and sensation and smell and taste. All of that alerts us to the beginning of this kind of uh, very open, very transparent uh, interface between our senses and uh, experience. So that when, before we have that cohesive, responsive mind, something so sudden like a sound can have a, uh, a sudden, unpleasant, and even aversive effect. Or something that we see. Every year, uh, I try to take one to three months of time to sit. And last year, I was sitting in a cabin in New Zealand, in the bush. And I was well into retreat, maybe three weeks, and self-retreat. And I sat every evening at a particular time when the sun was going down in the west. One night I was sitting there and feeling the sun rays, and so I'd open my eyes a little bit just to notice all the different uh, hues, the beautiful lavenders and uh, oranges and reds that, uh, that would spray out in different ways each night. And just at the moment I opened my eyes and was watching the sunset, a particular kind of New Zealand owl called a morgporg came out of nowhere. And in one shattering split second, grabbed a mountain rat off the edge of my roof, my cabin, just like that, and flew away. Boom, just like that. Just in that... <laughs> equanimous moment, you know. And for a second there, it was, it was shattering. I mean, I probably blinked once or twice and felt my heartbeat. But I was well into the retreat, so it had a profound effect that was uh, absorbed by the equanimity of this Vipassana Samadhi. And that's the difference between Vipassana Samadhi and just the pure concentration kind, in that it has this ability to not react, to take in something shocking in that way. So the Vipassana Samadhi is, is, um, is marked by this equanimity that can, that can flow with the experience, that care and detachment that's with things, but not reactive to things as they are. And it's also marked by uh, this Vipassana Samadhi, by the ability to view the world, the way of the world, uh, with metta, 
That is, so one can feel simultaneously, because of the equanimity, metta for both the owl and the rat. You know, compassion and loving kindness for the whole situation, which was, from one perspective, horrible. And from another perspective, it was life as it is. And thirdly, there's this uh, equanimity, this Vipassana Samadhi has this ability to view the way of the world with metta and compassion. And thirdly, it has the ability to uh, be, to protect the mind and heart from the assault of the kalesas, the negative states, greed, hatred, and delusion. That is in the way that it can absorb, say, a mind state of anger or fear and transform it. Let it go. So in that way, there's less <clears throat> or little, if not no agitation of the mind when, uh, when these waves, these difficult waves, appear. We're, we're more resilient to sleepiness, to doubt, to restlessness, to fear, desire, anger. Samadhi is the primary force of a mental purity. That is what purifies the stream of consciousness from the attachment, from the aversion, from the constant grasping or pushing away, and from the delusion of not seeing clearly. That purification leads to a deep and profound spiritual joy and calm and centeredness. That becomes incorporated in this cohesiveness of mind. It becomes what we can call a, um, a free-flow presence of mind. Free-flow presence of mind, or as an old poly teacher of mine from the University of Hawaii, the way he described samadhi, or, or uh, defined it, was as perfectly put together. Those moments where the mind is so collected, it feels just perfectly put together. It's not lacking in anything. It's not needing anything. For moments, for minutes or longer, it's those times when we feel that we can just ride the crest of the wave as it is. Complete, whole, self-sufficient. Not needing anything. Things just as they are. This free flow presence of mind has uh, two unique, unique aspects. One is its responsiveness to experience, and the other is the skillfulness with which we uh, are connected with experience. That is the, the wise attention, the wise response. Responsive, responsiveness means that instead of being shattered, by experience like that broken mirror, that whatever appears is an opportunity. And that opportunity means that, for example, any unpleasant experience, pain in the body, painful emotional states, it's the opportunity to, to decondition our normal reactiveness of mind. There's a big difference between unpleasantness 
and aversion to the unpleasantness. Every moment we experience that, uh, that affective tone of either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutrality. That's how, in the Buddhist psychology, feelings are defined. In this way, that's, they're different than emotions. That emotions or sensations or thoughts themselves are all either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So, when the mind is lacking this cohesion and this responsiveness, the impact of something unpleasant, we're unable to just be with the unpleasantness of it. Instead, the mind is trained to push it away or contract or feel fear. With the responsiveness of the cohesive mind, instead we're able to attune simply to the unpleasant feeling. And we cut off that link of feelings, conditioning, grasping, or aversion. Pleasant feelings, conditioning, uh, attachment, unpleasant feelings, conditioning, aversion. And instead we transform that. Unpleasant feelings, unpleasant experience, conditions, awareness, and understanding. Pleasant feelings, condition, awareness, and understanding. So when the energy is present, when that Dhamma energy is there, we actually attune to the very difficulty, the very pain that we're experiencing it, seeing and feeling its unpleasantness, but not letting the mind give in, you know, or having it at least be able to be resilient to the tendency to grasp, grasp onto the pleasant or push away the unpleasant. In this way, we learn very profoundly about the nature of experience. Because these pleasant feelings are continually appearing and vanishing. Usually what we're attached to is a pleasant feeling that's already gone. Or what we're feeling aversion toward is an unpleasant feeling that's already gone. So if we can, if we can attune very closely into the immediacy of these feelings, and just hang out with them, be with them, feel them. We're deconditioning that mind that grasps or pushes away. We're able to more be all right with discomfort. The responsiveness then can absorb, and when I talk about absorb, it means open to or let into the awareness, uh, to feel it, to be able then to disidentify. Even feel it, take it into the body. Absorb it in that way and transform means to then understand it through awareness and insight, to, to know what it is, what it's about. So that the energy of the anger, for example, it, it dissipates in its tendency to get fixed or focused on ourselves or on someone else. It just breaks up, becomes something else. And we view the world also through, um, through the metta and compassion. There are many creative ways of wise response in our life, the things that happen internally or externally around us. Some of the responses can be quite uh, gentle in their approach, and some can be quite or seem quite fierce, although they're centered in compassion. 
I had a um, teacher for a while in India. I practice at a Japanese center, Japanese monastery, with a teacher whose name was Shibuya-san. And Shibuya-san, he, he ran everything. You know, he oversaw the beautiful gardens around the temple, uh, you know, landscaped in traditional Zen fashion with the raked grass and the big boulders and uh, bamboo and so forth. So it was a beautiful garden. And he also oversaw the, uh, the, uh, the teachings at the temple. Each morning at 6 or when the sun was uh, rising, a group of Westerners would gather and there'd be chanting and a sitting and a walking. And the same each evening about 6 o'clock. And he also took care of all the administrative aspects of the, of the temple and the, um, the lodge where pilgrims, mostly from Japan, came. So he worked most of the day, and he went to bed 10 o'clock at night, and he woke up four hours later, and he sat from 2 to 6, and got up for the morning puja. And he had these two wonderful complementary sides, and one side of him was so yielding and so gentle and loving, and the other side of him was this powerful, kind of fierce um, presence. So I was invited to stay at the Japanese temple and practice. And each, this was during the hot season. Each night we'd go into the temple, and because it was so hot, we'd open this dungeon door and go down underneath the temple, where it was like a, 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 was like a dungeon. It was very cool. And there we'd sit. Mostly it would be he and I, uh, but sometimes uh, one of his disciples, another monk, would join us. And sometimes a visitor would join us. Once there was this visitor who was, a, he was a, an Indian pilgrim. And he was very large. And he fell asleep very easily. So for several nights he was there. And within five or ten minutes of our four-hour sit, the Indian man began to snore. <laughs> and it was really, it was immediately annoying to me. So I expected Shibuya-san, you know, to, to do something, you know, at least cough or nudge him, if not, you know, whack him with a Zen stick or something. And I kept, you know, stealing little glances at Shibuya-san, sitting, sitting to my right. And he was just unmoving. You know, hour after hour, he just sat there while this other lovely, portly old Indian man just snored away for four hours the whole time there. <laughs> he did nothing. And another time, there was no one else in there but Shibuya-san and myself. And this was, this was also a delightful experience. I mean, that obviously just... He just dealt with the sound. He didn't do anything about that. Another night, it was just the two of us, and he obviously had a hard, long day, because Shibuya-san himself was sleepy. And I watched him the first, took about two hours, the first two hours of the night. He just slowly began to fold over. <laughs> he didn't snore. 
It took two hours until his head was touching the ground. <laughs> and there it stayed <laughs> for the remaining two hours. Delightful imperfection. He taught me a lot in that way. And he also displayed a remarkable ferocity when that was appropriate. Another morning, we got up, got out of our sitting. It was the morning puja, 8 or 12. Westerners came in from Bodhgaya, from the town. And we did our, our sitting and walking and chanting. And the ritual at the end of that was to walk out to the corner of the temple and just bow in respect to the Bodhi tree, the enlightenment tree in the center of Bodhgaya. At this time, there were also a large group of pilgrims from Japan who weren't there to practice, uh, who were there um, just for as a tourist um, sport. So we were out there at the end, and it was Shibuya-san in front, and his monk, and myself, and the eight or twelve other Westerners. And the pilgrims came out. And it was just as a the sun's rising, it's so beautiful and so still. And, and then and there's mist, and the, the full moon was just setting, and the uh, summer sun was just rising. And we're bowing, and all these, tour, all these tourists, there's a real a flock of them, came out there and they were taking pictures of us as, we, as if we were a spectacle. And they were stepping all over the, the raked gardens, you know, and. Uh, um, brushing up against the bamboo, the delicate bamboo. They started taking pictures. No one could see Shibuya-san's face. But he's there, poised there. And out of nowhere comes this remarkably ferocious lion's roar. And I don't know what he said, (laughs) but it was as if throwing a a stone into a small pond. Because these people just scattered. Canon cameras and everything flying in every which direction, and they just dissolved. They were just gone. And there was just this kind of uh, abated, contracted silence. I was terrified to see him turn around because of the immensity of his, of his roar. But when he turned around, and what he would do when he turned around normally is um, bow to each one of us and say, Ohio Gazimus, good morning. So I was really prepared for something different this morning. But he turned around, and his face was absolutely serene, just like the setting moon and the rising summer sun. Just as cool, not flushed, you know, just like that. You know, Ohio Gazimus, he went down, each of us. That's a collected mind. Unwavering. This free flow presence that's both responsive, able to absorb, transform, let go, and also its capacity of skillfulness, of when awareness and collectedness combine, sati, samadhi, it becomes this powerful layer of mind that's both buoyant and powerful, that's subtle and strong 
that's soft and has that sharpness of clarity. Compared often in the Buddhist teaching, teachings to a needle, which is both smooth and delicate, yet can, can penetrate to the core, to the essence of things, see things just as they are. The, the way that practice really moves is not so much the sense of a linear progression forward into something, but more of an unlayering, you know, of an unfolding, a peeling apart, so that what we begin to discover is more and more subtle layers of the mind, more and more uh, delicate layers of the mind, but also that are strong, cohesive, powerful. So I think this is expressed well in one of the uh, Jataka tales with which I'll end talk tonight. It's about our bodhisattva, of course, and about a needle. So this is the story of this skillfulness of mind and uh, its wise response to things. Uh, perfecting the parami of wisdom. So once a long time ago, once before time, once beyond time, once deep in mythological time, which is all time, our bodhisattva was born with very poor parents in the village called Kasi. And it was a family of smiths. But in this life, the bodhisattva had perfected his skill. And as a smith, he was unsurpassed, though yet unknown. Nearby was another village. And this village was a, a much larger one. It had 1,000 smiths. And its chief smith was the, was the one who, have, who was rich and of great substance and was known throughout the land. In fact, he was the favorite of the queen and king. And they came to him for their needles and their axes and their razors and their plowshares and all the tools that were needed for the kingdom. This headsmith had a rumored to be the most beautiful daughter in all the land, with all the marks of beauty. And people who would go to the village and buy from them their, their metal wares would get a glimpse of her and the reputation of her beauty spread. Soon it came to the village of Kasi, where our bodhisattva lived. And he began to hear around the wells where the women drew waters and spoke, or around the haunts of men where they talked of politics and farming. He began to hear word of this woman, and as soon as he heard of her, he knew he must marry her. So he took some of the finest metal he could find and crafted this most remarkable needle that could pierce metal yet float on water. And then for that, he devised a sheath for it, which could do the same, pierce metal and float on water. And for that, he devised another sheath. And so on until there were seven sheaths, 
on this needle. And then he put it into a case, a tube, and put that in his case. And he went off to the village of the great smiths. And he asked, which street does the head smith live on? And he was told. So he went up down that street and he began peddling his wares, saying, I have here the most delicate and refined needle that exists. It threads perfectly, it is smooth, it is delicate, it's emeryed at both ends, it pierces metal, so great it is. And he go back and forth, peddling. I have here this fine, fine needle that threads exquisitely and is smooth as emery and delicate, it can pierce metal. Inside, the headsmith's daughter uh, with a palm fan was fanning her father after a big meal. And she heard the honey-sweet voice of the bodhisattva out there pacing up and down. And she thought she had been quite healthy. But when she heard his voice, it was as if she would suddenly recovered from food poisoning. You know, or as if she had just then been drenched with a hundred jars of the most pure spring water ever. You know, she said, I better find out who this smith is. I mean, after all, who would be trying to sell needles in a village of smiths like us? So she laid down the fan, palm, and she, um, she walked out to the veranda. She said, who goes there? You know, who are you to sell needles in a village of smiths? I mean, we sell to the queen, to the king. They all come to us for their razors and axes and needles and weapons and plowshares and so forth. It's folly for you to be here. There's many villages out there. You should go to one of the very small ones. There you can sell your needle. And she went on like that, you know, to telling him it's, it's like, it's like uh, trying to sell cheese and chocolate in Switzerland. Well, she didn't know about that then. <laughs> but the Bodhisattva, unmoved, he said, you know not what you're saying. He said, skill sells itself. I have here a needle any master would covet. In fact, if your father knew what I had here, he would let me ask your hand in marriage. Not only that, He'd give me all his property. <laughs> Bodhisattva was bold in this lifetime. <laughs> so the father was uh, hearing all this, and he said, you know, call that young man in here. So she um, invited him in, and they came in. And he said, well, who are you? What's your name? Who's your family? Where do you come from? And what do you want? And he answered all those questions, and he said, I want to sell this needle. And he said, well, show me this needle. And the Bodhisattva said, is not a thing seen amongst many better than shown one to one? And already the, uh, the master of the house thought, hmm, this might be a fine young fellow here. You're right, he said. And so he sent out word, in no time at all, all thousand smiths of the village were there in their large courtyard. And the master said, well, let's have your needle then. And the Bodhisattva said, I want you to bring a large iron anvil. 
and a bronze bowl of water. So the master had to send for a very strong person to bring in a huge, big iron anvil. And then he got a bowl of water, set those down. And the headsmith said, okay, let's see your needle. So the bodhisattva handed him. After he pulled out of the case, the tube, he handed him the needle. Master took it and he said, this is the needle? The bodhisattva said, no, that's the sheath. The master looked at it, top to bottom, magnifying glass. He couldn't tell, hide or tail, which is the top, which is the bottom, or even how it might open. So the bodhisattva took it back with a little flip of a fingernail, and off came one of the tips, and he slid out the needle, put the sheath one side, and handed him the needle. So the headsmith took it, and he said, well, this is the needle, I suppose. No, that's the sheath. And again, he looked at it and couldn't tell from top to bottom how to open it. The bodhisattva had to take it back again. Again, flipped it open, put down the second sheath, handed him the needle. Ah, I see. So this is the needle. So it went seven times, seven sheaths. And finally, he laid the needle in the hand of the master. And a thousand people were overjoyed, and they began the snapping of fingers and the waving of claws, which white handkerchiefs, which was their expression of something magnificent. And they said, never have we seen such fine crafting as this. Well, I've seen how delicate this needle is, said the headsmith. How strong is it? Okay, so he handed the needle to the smith, and he said, have this iron anvil placed on top of this bronze bowl of water, and then just strike it through the top of the anvil. So the headsmith did that. He took the needle, struck it to the top of the anvil. It went sliding right through the metal and floated in the water, not moving a hair's breadth up or down. And with what? With that, the villagers went wild, snapping of fingers, <laughs> waving of claws. <laughs> And they said, never have we even heard rumored in all of India such skill, such craftsmanship as this. And with that, the master and, the, uh, and his wife came and they sprinkled water over the couple, uh, signifying that the, there was permission was granted for the marriage. And before long, the Bodhisattva was the greatest smith in all the land. <laughs> Let's sit together a couple minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.